Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. As we come to that word now, we pray that your spirit would be our teacher and guide to lead us into all truth for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I am pretty sure that our confirmees have grown up with a vast array of gadgets and toys that their parents and their grandparents have never known. Uh, when I grew up, a drone was a kind of a bee, an apple was something that you ate, and you had to go outside to hear a tweet. But it's not all one way, because there is one thing that the previous generation had that today's teenagers have never experienced. They've never experienced firecracker night. Let me tell you, it was a big deal. It was the, the highlight of the year uh, because um, you would come and you had a real risk of blowing your hand off or setting your sister on fire or something like that. Hand, hands up, those who've got, who are old enough to have living memories of firecracker night. Okay, all you young, young people look around and just feel, the, feel how much you've missed out on. You see, firecrackers, uh, you, you had these things called Catherine wheels, which you were supposed to nail to the fence and they would spin around and shoot sparks, but of course if you just put them on the concrete and lit them, that was even more spectacular. You had Roman candles, which again you were supposed to put in a bucket of sand, but if you held them in your hand and pointed them at somebody, you could really get a, 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 a bit of a jump. But the thing I really loved was a thing called the penny bunger. Uh, this was the ultimate shock and awe firecracker because there was no, there's no light. You just exploded and scared the living daylights out of people. And even better than the penny bunger was the double bunger. You had to go to Chinatown to go to special shops to get these things. But the, 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 the double bunger, the great thing about that was it would go off with an explosion and then about three seconds later it would go off again. So just after your sister had recovered her breath and got the adrenaline back down, she would be scared out of her wits. Now, the reason why I'm telling you all of this is not just to make you feel bad for being young, um, but because the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 19 is a double bunger. Ordinarily, a parable has just one main point, one, one big idea. And, and in fact, Matthew 25 has a parable, a parallel parable, a parallel a parable very similar to the one here in Luke 19. But the Matthew version is just the single big idea version. The version here in Luke's gospel, as I said, is a double bunger parable because there's a parable within a parable or a parable wrapped in a parable. And I use the bunger metaphor deliberately because each of the parables is explosive when you understand what it's saying to us. This double parable is a challenge for our confirmees who identify themselves as the servants of Jesus. In fact, it's a challenge for all of us here tonight, wherever we stand with Jesus, as we're going to see as we have a look at it. As I said, in Luke 19, there is an outer parable and an inner parable. The outer wrapper is the parable that starts in verse 12. A man of noble birth goes to a distant country to be appointed as king and then to return. However, not all the subjects of the king are happy about this. Uh, we read in verse 14 that the subjects hated him and they send a delegation after him and they say, we don't want this man to be king. 
You have to now look right ahead to the end of the passage to get the, the end of that parable. Uh, around about verse 27, what happens is the nobleman has been crowned king, he's come back, he's taken up his place on the throne, and then he says at the end of the passage, these enemies of mine who did not want them to be king, did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. This outer parable about a king and his subjects is a wrapper around an inner parable about the king and his servants. I mean, in in our Holman translation, it was slaves, but these are the trusted household slaves, probably better to translate it servants. So think about it this way. The outer parable, king and his subjects. The inner parable, the king and his servants. Before we look at the inner parable, let's just unpack the meaning of the outer parable. Jesus is telling this parable about himself. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is on a journey to Jerusalem. He's just about to arrive there. And in fact, in the very next episode in Luke's gospel, Jesus does arrive in Jerusalem, entering into the city with the crowds, proclaiming him as the king who they've been waiting for. But when he gets there, the Jewish authorities stir up the crowd to reject Jesus as king, and it ends up leading to Jesus' crucifixion one week later. The death of Jesus, of course, isn't the end of the story. Though the crowds reject Jesus as king, God has a very different plan. Uh, Through the resurrection of Jesus, through his ascension into heaven, God declares, the one that you've rejected as king is really my king. Right now, Jesus is that king who rules from his throne in heaven, one day he will return as Lord and Judge of all the earth. Now, you can see what Jesus is telling this parable about. He is that man of noble birth who's the one born to be king. He's the one who's gone off to a distant place to be appointed as king. And one day he will return to take up the throne as king. And this delay between his appointment as king, his return as king, is the reason why Jesus told this parable. As you see in verse 11 at the very beginning of the passage, he tells the parable because he was near to Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Jesus wants his disciples to know that it's not going to happen overnight. Yes, I am going to be the king, but it's not going to happen next week or or even next month. There is going to be a delay before the kingdom of God will arrive. But delay or not, the king will come back. And the conclusion of this outer parable hammers home the point that when the king returns, the rebellious subjects will be brought to account. Who are those rebellious subjects? They're the ones who say in verse 14, we don't want this man to be our king. This parable is just as relevant today as it was when Jesus told it. There are plenty of people today who say, we don't want this man to be our king. Perhaps you are one of those people. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're antagonistic towards Jesus. You just don't want Jesus telling you what to do. The explosive shock of this parable is to say you can't get away with that forever. Like the man in the parable, Jesus has been enthroned as king, which means that all of us are the subjects of King Jesus. Whether we like it or not, we will be answerable to him. Now, this outer parable about the subjects of the king is wrapped around an inner parable about the servants of the king. 
whereas one has a message for those who are on the outside, for the non-Christian, as it were, the other one is pointed towards those who are on the inside, towards the Christians. That's not directed towards the unwilling subjects of the king, it's towards the willing servants. It's a message for our confirmees and indeed for all of us who claim to be followers of Jesus. Jesus tells us about 10 servants who each receive a unit of money called Amina. It's about $10,000 in today's terms. It's a pretty significant amount of money. And as verse 13 tells us, he, he gave the, the 10 servants, each of them gets the same amount of money, and he says, put this money to work until I come back. As verse 15 tells us, in due time, the man was made king, he comes home, and then he sends for all of his servants to find out what they have gained while he's been away. The first of the servants comes back and declares that he has earned a tenfold increase on his one mina coin. Another servant has earned a fivefold increase from his mina. Um, It's kind of nice that we don't get number three and four and five and six and seven and eight, but these two servants establish the pattern for all the other servants who aren't mentioned explicitly. For nine of the servants, they've done the right thing. Each of them has gained a return on what has been entrusted to them, though it seems in differing proportions. Each one receives the master's commendation. Well done, my good servant. Because you have been trustworthy in a small matter, take charge of ten or five cities, respectively. However, that's not the case with the last of the servants. In verse 20, we see that this servant has not done anything with what had been entrusted to him. He comes to the king and says, look, here's your mina. I buried it in the ground. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. This man's failure is not just an overabundance of caution. He's actually being disobedient. The king had told him, put this money to work until I come back. And that's the one thing that he hasn't done. If he'd even put the money on deposit with the bankers, which is the very least he should have done, at least there would have been something to show for it. In fact, he probably expended more money, more energy just hiding it away or burying it in the ground or whatever he did with it than the very least that he should have done. And because of that the master passes judgment on him. He says in verse 22 that he's going to judge that servant according to his own words. He calls him a wicked servant, a lazy servant. He said, you know that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? We go straight on to find out that the servant is punished, much to the amazement of everyone there, the servant loses the one mina that he's had wrapped in his hanky all this time and it's given to the first servant who has ten. What does this parable say to us, those of us who identify as the servants of Jesus? This parable says, while we are waiting for Jesus to return, we have a job to do. We are meant to be putting all of our energies into the master's business, or to put it into theological language, we are meant to be seeking first the kingdom of God, building his kingdom, helping more people to come, come to become followers of the king. Those ten servants were entrusted with money, we've been entrusted with a message. 
a, a great message, a gospel message about free forgiveness of sins, all because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. When the servants put the master's money to work, the master's business grew. When we put God's message to work, God grows his kingdom, more people become servants of the king. That's the game plan. That, that's what we're supposed to be doing. This parable is saying to us, if you are a servant of the king, then your lives should be centred on that, that task that's been entrusted to us. On the final day, when Jesus returns, do you want Jesus to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant? Then get on with it. Throw yourself into the master's business. Labor at making his kingdom grow. Are you doing that? Are you putting your energy into the things that grow for eternity? Are you loving and serving people in Jesus' name? Are you sharing the gospel with them so that they can discover Jesus the King for themselves? Are you helping them to grow and be firm as Christians? Are you seeking first the kingdom of God? What do you think you will hear from Jesus if you put all your energies into building up your own empire on earth, living for yourself rather than obeying the king? What will happen if you spend your life amassing treasures here on earth rather than storing up treasures in heaven? At best, Jesus might say to you on that final day, what a waste of a life. But this parable suggests that there could be something much worse than that. This unfaithful servant who disobeyed his master's instruction loses everything. It's chilling how it ends in verse 26 and 27. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. This man is condemned as a wicked servant, and at the end he misses out entirely. That's why this parable is a double bunger. The outer parable about unwilling subjects and the inner parable about willing servants actually come back together at this point because it shows that it's possible to cross over from one category back into the other. A disobedient servant is no better than an unwilling subject. The servant who refuses to do what the master has commanded them to do ends at the end of the parable not to be a servant at all anymore. What about us? The explosive shock of this double bunger parable is that those who claim to be Jesus' servants but who refuse to pursue the master's business turn out not to be Christians in the end. This parable is speaking to us in the situation between the resurrection of Jesus and his return. What should you do in response to this parable? Well, it really depends on where you see yourself, whether you see yourself as outside or inside. To those on the outside, to someone who says, I don't want Jesus to be king over me, this parable is urging you to change your mind before it's too late. Jesus is the king and you can only defy him for so long. But one day he will return. Will you be ready? For those of us who see themselves as being on the inside to our confinees and to, to many of us, this parable reminds us that we can't just call ourselves the servants of Jesus and go on our merry way. We actually have to 
follow Jesus. That means doing what Jesus says. We will be accountable to him one day. What do you want Jesus to say to you when he comes back? Wicked servant or well done, good and faithful servant. So for our confirmees and for all who claim to be servants of the king, it's not enough to say it. Will you do it? Servants serve their heavenly master. Jesus calls you to follow him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you have raised him up to be our Lord and King and that one day he will return for the whole world to see what is now the truth of heaven. Father, we pray that on that day we may all be found to be his willing servants. We pray it in his name. Amen.